Welcome to the Sheep Connect New South Wales podcast. It's time for you. A podcast produced for the sheep industry by Sheep Connect New South Wales. Hi, I'm Fiona MacArthur, a network coordinator for Sheep Connect New South Wales. The Sheep Extension Network in New South Wales, which is fully funded by Australian Wool Innovation. Sheep Connect New South Wales has a membership of over 4,000 and our main aim is to help keep you and your sheep business up to date on information about all things sheep. We are pleased to have you join us this season for our winter edition of It's Time For You. With over 65,000 listens on our podcast, we thank you for joining us. Sheep Connect New South Wales is pleased to host Australian Wool Innovation staff to discuss current research, development, extension and marketing across the wool industry. Australian Wool Innovation has been hosting future wool events in regional locations throughout Australia. In addition, we have hosted an online event for those who are unable to attend the face-to-face. In this episode of It's Time For You, I am joined by Emily King, who is AWI's Program Manager for Research and Extension, and Henry Ridge, who is AWI's Project Manager for the Rural Growers Services, and Dr. Jane Littlejohn, AWI's General Manager for Research. So now joined by Emily King, AWI's Program Manager for Research and Extension. And Emily's been really busy with Henry for some parts of it, floating around the countryside at the moment, delivering future wool events throughout uh, the wool growing regions of Australia. So welcome, Emily, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, thanks for having me. Emily, just before we delve into all about AWI, if people haven't joined a future wool event yet, could you tell them what it's all about and what they're likely to expect? Absolutely. So Future Wool, we've, uh, it's a bit of a new initiative for AWI and we started rolling these out in February this year. So uh, just um, being, I guess, around the countryside and we're doing these in all wool growing states of Australia. We really wanted to get out and speak directly with growers. So we've been going to, I guess, some, uh, in a lot of cases to some smaller regional towns and uh, speaking with growers. So generally, I guess the Future Wall presentation is about giving giving the uh, attending people an overview of, you know, I guess, who is AWI, what do we do, how are we funded, um, where the production and the market stands right now, and then have a look at some opportunities for wool um, product and processing innovations and research and development, and then a heap of time for questions and discussion as well. And we usually uh, spend about two hours having a look at what's going on and just really high-level look at a number of different areas of AWI and Walmart company, and then just also have questions and answers, and then have either lunch or dinner, depending on what works for that region. So it's been great to get out on ground and um, see what's happening, have a look at the countryside and um, see what's affecting growers in all different regions in Australia and just update them on what we've been working on on their behalf. Yeah, it's certainly been very interesting for the growers that I've spoken to as well to have you guys in their town as well and then being able to speak to you face-to-face and finding out all about the industry from your perspective. So thanks very much. Emily, who is AWI and how important is it for AWI to be across the whole supply chain? Hi, Fee. Well, AWI is the research, development and marketing corporation responsible for investing wool grower levies. And uh, so we work right across the supply chain. Wool can be quite a long supply chain. There can be up to 16 processes in the supply chain. So we like to work with people all across the supply chain to really ensure that people want to choose wool. I guess wool is quite a luxury niche fibre. It only makes up about 1% of the global textile uh, proportion. So we really want people to really choose wool and we work really hard right across the supply chain to promote the benefits of wool and really, I guess, show why you'd want to pick wool over another fibre. Emily, you've been travelling around a lot throughout regional Australia delivering the future wool to wool growers from across different wool growing states we have. 
And one of the really interesting things I found that came out of that, which the farmers really enjoyed, was the strategic plan and how it was described, which really drives AWI and your focus. What are the main components within the strategic plan at AWI? Well, our strategic plan, which is, of course, available at wool.com on our website, if anyone would like a little bit of a quiet bedtime reading. But basically, there's five key pillars of investment for AWI, and we run on a three-year strategic plan at this stage. So our current strategic plan is from the 1st of July 2019 through till the 30th of June 2022. And so the five key pillars are sheep production, innovation and advocacy. And you can basically think of that as on-farm research and development, shearer and wool handler training, and extension for wool growers. Then under the consultation investment pillar, that's where we do our consultation, of course, with wool growers, but also with other key stakeholders in the wool industry. So examples of that would include um, wool brokers and exporters, state farming organisations, peak bodies such as Wool Producers Australia, National Farmers Federation, and, and also, of course, um, working with all different types of uh, industry stakeholders uh, right across the industry there. Then we have traceability. Uh, and traceability, not just about tracing a physical parcel of wool, but also improving transparency and information flow up and down the whole supply chain. So I guess we're getting more and more requests for information, people wanting to know, you know, who grew this wool that we're making this garment with and wanting to profile wool growers and understand more about how wool is grown. Uh, so I guess that's a really exciting opportunity and growth area for the industry. And then the third or sorry, fourth of the pillars that we have is processing innovation and education extension. So I guess that's sort of more your post-farm gate research and development, and it's looking at things, you know, looking into innovations we can do with the fibre. So whether that be in designing um, new products or new processing and ways of using wool for different applications that we hadn't thought of before, or that might be, you know, a new knitting machine has been developed and what type of yarn do we need to now innovate to um, make that knitting machine really perform at its greatest potential. And the fifth, but not final, of course, but fifth of those investment pillars is marketing. And our key objective there is to increase demand for Australian wool. And so that's another key reason why we work right across the supply chain, ensuring that all people in that supply chain continue to choose wool and uh, really want to prioritise wool. And, um, and I guess you know, really focusing on working with brands that are wanting to work with wool and um, and utilising wool grower levy funds and leveraging those with the brand's own money to promote Australian wool. And we'll be expanding on a few of those areas later on in the podcast. And Emily, with 2021 being a wool poll year and growers will receive some information about that shortly. How does Woolpole fit in with AWI's strategic plan? Thanks, V. Yes, this is a Woolpole year and there's a range of things for wool growers to vote on this year. So information will be coming out to all levy payers to um, for their perusal before the Woolpole vote. But I guess in the main, um, Woolpole is the chance for growers to vote on the amount of levy that they are contributing to AWI to look after the research, development and marketing functions for the wool industry. And so it's a great opportunity at this stage every three years for growers to have their say in what's happening in the industry and, and how things are being run. So uh, there'll be five levy options available for all levy payers to have the chance to vote on this year. And then there will also be a question being put to levy payers about whether or not they would like to leave the strategic planning period for AWI at three years or if they'd like to extend that to five years. Additionally, this year is a director election year. And so for anyone who is a shareholder of AWI and there's a number of eligible uh, levy payers who can be shareholders, um, and so there's more information on our website uh, and or by contacting Link Market Services, who manages AWI's shareholder registry. And the shareholders of the company also have the chance this year to vote in the director elections. And there's three positions for directors available on the board this year. So basically, whatever wool growers decide at Woolpole 2021, 
The voting will be open from Monday the 13th of September until Friday the 9th of November. And then the outcome will be made public at the AGM, at AWI's AGM in late November. So, um, so whatever is decided through the wool grower vote this year in Woolpole 2021, that levy rate and our new strategic plan will become effective as of the 1st of July 2022. We're going to talk to Jane Littlejohn a little bit later in the podcast about the different AWI research investments. But before we move on to Henry, Emily, could you just tell us how many projects does AWI invest in? Because it's really very extensive. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think it does shock people, I guess, when you start looking into some of the projects we're working on. And it goes from everything from, you know, landmarking and um, wild dogs through to a runway in Paris or London. But um, over the last three years, between AWI and the Walmart company, so of course the Walmart company is the name that we use to do all of our marketing um, and supply chain work under, and it's a wholly owned subsidiary of AWI. Uh, so between AWI and the Walmart company, we've invested in over 400 projects across the supply chain uh, in the last three years. Thanks, Emily. We're going to ask you to come back into the podcast in a little bit and talk to us more about how AWI works and promotes through the different markets we have for wool. But I'd like to talk to Henry Ridge first and get a little bit of a summary of the industry as it stands at the moment. So Henry Ridge, as I said before, is the project manager for Wool Grower Services and that involves Sheep Connect New South Wales directly because he um, oversees our network, which is wonderful. So welcome, Henry, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Faye, and uh, it's great to be back on the podcast. Been a little while between outings, but um, yeah, that is right. That's my main role at AWI is working with the, the state networks. So Sheep Connect New South Wales is one of the six. So if you're listening from other states, uh, keep an eye out for your one or go to wool.com forward slash networks to find them. But yeah, we're, with the future wool events we've been running, um, after outlining sort of where we are as AWI and where we stand, I think it's it's always great to outline where the, the markets are at in both production uh, and then uh, with the EMI and price and things. So globally, uh, Fiona, looking at what Australia produces against the rest of the world, uh, breaking it into fine wool and medium and broad wool. So in terms of fine wool, so finer than 24.5 micron, Australia produces 68% of that. Uh, so a huge ma majority of what's produced around the world, where when you go to the broader wools, it's actually uh, the other way around, where we're producing a minority of, of 7%. So quite uh, quite unique in the clip that we grow here in Australia compared to the rest of the world. And I guess when you when you bring it back just to Australia, that's 83% of our wool coming in under 24.5 micron and only the 17% uh, that's left being broader than that. So definitely a merino predominant clip in terms of volume. Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. And I came to your future wool events when you were touring around my part of the state up in the New England where I'm from. And I found it really interesting, as you've just said, to get a rehash on what's actually happening in the industry at the moment. So for our listeners out there, Henry, can you tell us what's the current value of the Australian wool industry? Yeah, the current value in US dollars is is over one and a half uh, billion. So it is a uh, is a huge export industry for Australia, with uh, over ninety nine percent of our wool being exported. GVP has been impacted, and uh, that's a combination of lower production through the droughts, drought over the eastern seaboard, and and um, changes in price, which we'll get onto. So uh, there has been a few impacting uh, factors on GVP, but um, yeah, it's good to see with the season's return, the production's changed a bit in the eastern states. And just to give everyone a bit of a picture, how does the production of wool compare between the different wool growing states in Australia? Sure. So um, New South Wales is the largest state wool growing state in Australia. So. It's produced uh, in the year 1920, so going back the financial year before uh, the one just finished. 
So we're producing about 100 million kilograms, which is 33% of the national clip where last financial year, so 2020, 2020, sorry, 2020, 21, it was 114 million kilograms that was being tested through AWTA. So it's an increase uh, up to 36%. So it is uh, our largest wool growing state and second to New South Wales in terms of volume, we have Victoria, uh, WA and South Australia, and then Queensland and Tasmania bringing up the minority. But um, I guess, yeah, overall, uh, the yearly change for New South Wales has increased 15% of our national clip. And our national clip overall has, has increased 7.6% um, between those two years. So that's a reflection of the, the recovery in seasons over here on the eastern seaboard. And within New South Wales, because we are Sheep Connect New South Wales, so we'll have to favour New South Wales just a little bit in this podcast. <laughs> what is the largest wool growing region that we see within our state? Yes, so this is again captured with AWTA data. So this is all the tested volumes that go through when wool's being tested. And it comes in at the southeastern, which is uh, very much uh, that southeastern corner. So south of the central west and then east of sort of the Murrumbidgee and Murray regions. And uh, it comes in at just under 20, mil 20 million kilograms. But interestingly, uh, when we're looking at this, the northern half of that produces 16 out of those nearly 19 million uh, kilograms. So a majority of that's coming from up uh, just below the central uh, central west. But uh, yeah, so that southeastern's the largest. And then we, in the webinar, we had a map up, so it would have made it a bit easier to relate with it. But after that, the Murrumbidgee, central west and northwestern regions are the larger end of the wool growing areas in New South Wales and then um, yeah, the, the Murray and uh, northern New South Wales, so the New England and north of there and the far west come in, coming in at the tail end. So it's a bit hard without the map, but yeah, that southeastern uh, Murrumbidgee and central west is definitely the top end of uh, where our tested wool is coming from in New South Wales. And Henry, you touched on this a little bit before that we've really had a bit of a rocky road over the last couple of years with severe drought across the eastern seaboard and then of course COVID. How has COVID affected the price growers are receiving for their wool? Yeah, the price growers are receiving for wool has recovered and everyone would have seen the depths that it went down to in COVID. But I guess pre-COVID is a good spot to start. So looking at uh, July 19 through to sort of March last year, March 2020, before COVID really started impacting on our Eastern market indicator. But growers were receiving, you know, roughly below that 1600 cents in that time period, so leading up to COVID. And it was quite stable through there where it stabilised from those falls from the $20.21 we saw uh, in August, September 2018. So there's a lot of volatility and then in July 19, through to pre-COVID, there was stability. COVID hit, and then that's where we saw a huge uh, impact on the price growers receiving. And I went down and bottomed out at 858 cents in September last year, September 2020. So a uh, huge, huge reduction in what they were receiving there. And uh, you know, it's great to see where it's come back to since then. And considering a lot of economies aren't fully open yet across the world, and we're watching uh, the vaccine rates and uh, growth come back in and stimulation across these economies. But where it's now, where it is now, fair has recovered sort of 66% from that bottom. So really, that's a great result to come out of a pandemic and be uh, be receiving those prices again. Yeah, it certainly is good to see. And it's obviously a reflection that so much of our wool is exported. So we really rely on what's going on overseas, which I'd like to talk about now. So what are our main export markets for Australian wool? Yeah, the major export markets, well, uh, everyone would have would see the commentary and that China is our largest export market. So traditionally, they so, sort of would take about 75% of our uh, exported wool fee owner, but um, in the in about December 
2020, they were taking up to 90% of it and it closed out last financial year at 86.5% of our exported wool. So that is a increase on, on where they would normally be, about that 75%. And definitely a majority of what we're, we're exporting overseas. So to look at that remaining 13.5% of our wool that's exported, that's going to one third of that's going to the Czech Republic uh, about another third or just less going to India and then Italy and South Korea make up the larger portion of, of that uh, remaining percentage that we're exporting. And um, yeah, I suppose Italy and India, uh, you know, where they are now is about 70% 70, 70 off the pace of where they normally would be. So normally around that 6 to 7% of the, the clip, which is... Um, yeah, a long way off that where they are now. So it'll be great to see what happens to the market when uh, they're importing the volumes they were pre-COVID. And China is obviously of interest to us with so many of our exports going over there. How, if we look at all our agricultural exports that we send to China, how are they affected by different trade barriers? Yeah, it's been a topic of conversation, Faye, we've, we've had in this future wool presentation and people would have been seeing in media and the likes commentary. So we just thought we'd, we'd highlight a few things that make wool uh, unique in a couple ways compared to these other commodities. So just looking at commodities that have been affected, we've got the likes of beef, barley, cotton, alcohol, and then down the lower export value end, we've got crustaceans and sugars. But these uh, commodities have had trade barriers of different uh, standards placed upon them. And where wool's slightly different. So if we look at that, uh, wool's, wool's sort of a $2.5 billion export on average. So this is the 15, 2015 through to 2019 average is about $2.5 billion. So it's a huge value export uh, for Australian agricultural products to China. But I think one of the, well, one of the first reasons that we can observe that makes it different to other commodities is that uh, it's a value-add product, so it has a supply chain right through China that's adding value to the product and adding value to their economy through employment and the likes. So I guess to look at the value of that, uh, and this is looking at 2020 uh, import values, so China imported Australian greasy wool nearly $1.6 US billion worth so if they're importing that volume fee, but then exporting wool at a higher volume, so they're exporting at nearly well over two and a half billion. So the export value that they're making out of wool is considerably larger than the import value that they're bringing it in for. But I think the most important part in that, in that feature there is that they're only exporting historically half of what they're importing. So half of it is being exported, and then that other half is staying in China and being consumed direct domestically there. So um, that is the other side of the value, which we can't measure, but it's a huge value add to their economy. And we don't get that in, uh, in some of those commodities that have been impacted. So they're direct consumables. So if we look at beef, for example, or alcohol, they don't have a huge supply chain through China like wool does. Uh, Emily's already mentioned it can be up to 16 steps if you want to take it through uh, through certain avenues to products. So uh, that is a key feature that we have uh, different to some other ones. And I suppose, you know, we know China's hugely important in to Australian wool industry in terms of where we're exporting to and purchasing country. But what do we mean to them, I suppose, is the, the other side of this. And Australia means a hell of a lot in the way of uh, it's 78% of the value of wool that they're importing into China, of greasy wool. So there's only 20% that's coming out of remaining countries. So that likes of South Africa and New Zealand, Argentina make up that. So that's 78% of greasy wool import value coming from Australia into China is reflective of both quantity and quality. So what we mean by that is set, they can't get that volume and quality of woolen product anywhere else in the world. So that's the second defining uh, feature that places wool a bit differently. Other commodities, barley, beef, alcohol, cotton, are produced in large volumes throughout other countries through the rest of the world. So, uh, yeah, another differentiating factor there, Faye. 
Yeah, it's certainly an important relationship for both countries. We're about to move on and talk to Emily about the different market opportunities for Australian wool that came out of, for me, came out of the future yeah. wool that you guys have been talking about, which was quite extraordinary. But before we go, I think it's really important for you to tell our listeners how COVID has changed the trends in garments that are being consumed throughout the world. Mm. Yes, yeah, it's uh, it's quite interesting looking at the different um, global imports and and what uh, year on year has happened through COVID to the year prior, and you can break it down into different categories. So I guess we start out with men's suits. So men's suits are typically worn in the workplace or let's say social events. So thinking about uh, what happened in COVID, both of those uh, opportunities to wear a woolen suit were completely gone, wiped out basically right across the world. So global imports of men's suits for the year were down 44% uh, year on year. And we can see uh, the peak of uh, COVID. So if I'm looking at April through June last year, that uh, was the period it was impacted most. So it actually got down to nearly 70% for the month of May, a bit less than the month prior being April. And then that's closed out the year, as I said, down 44% with a slight recovery through uh, the Northern Hemisphere winter. But men's suits is, doesn't have the seasonality of some of these other products. So when we look at women's coats, fee and what's happened with them through COVID compared to uh, the year prior with global imports, uh, again, completely smashed in uh, April, May, down 60% year on year. But women's coats are highly seasonal, so we can see the recovery of global imports going into that northern hemisphere winter where we would normally like to uh, expect to see a flow through the supply chain. So that's been reflected in the year-on-year -year, uh, recovery of that, I suppose, um, recovering from that 60% down to some of these only being down 10% for some of those months. Um, but closing out the year for women's coats being down 26%. Men's coats, another seasonal product, uh, really hard, hardly hit through that COVID period, April, May, and recovering back up to only be about down 20% uh, in those uh, Northern Hemisphere winter trading months, uh, closing the year out down 30%. And then I guess the last one that to look at in, uh, in these product areas is then knitwear. And so knitwear's performed or recovered, I should say, the best out of these uh, commodity sectors. So uh, April, May, down below 40%, but then recovering right through into that Northern Hemisphere, sort of being only down 10% and actually closed out the year. So the month of December, it closed out positive about eight, 9%. So men's, uh, sorry, so knitwear, only down 19% for the year. And uh, I, I think we're getting these numbers analysed again. and they do look to be much more neutral uh, year on year. So we don't seem to have those negative impacts for the start of this, this calendar year fee. Um, but yeah, interesting. And, you know, men's suits again is probably looking at something that's been happening for a while. And what we saw with them is it, it, there's casualization globally uh, in terms of what we're wearing uh, at work professionally and socially. So I know that Emily's got some, um, her conversation piece moving on to opportunities about products outside of that space and getting wool into them. But yeah, men's suits uh, is an interesting one with that casualization of, of the workforce and, and social events. But um, yeah, thanks, Fee. And I hope that's uh, given everyone a bit of an insight into where we are and, you know, with uh, how we are positioned both in our production here and uh, globally with where our wool's going. But yeah, thanks, Fiona. Oh, thanks, Henry. And um, hats off to you because I've probably given you the hardest job on the podcast today because I've asked you to talk about a bucket load of data, which is far easier to do if you have a whole heap of graphs to show the audience. So if anyone would like yeah. a little bit more information on that, Henry joined me along with Emily and Jane for a webinar on future wool and you'll find that on sheepconnectnewsouthwales.com.au and all Henry's got a great group of graphs as part of his presentation on that which goes into a lot of these points in much greater detail no no all good thanks and if you can't, don't want to go online there look out for the face-to-face -face events coming up 
Absolutely. So we'll move back to Emily now because we've just led so nicely in there with the changes in trends. So I'd like to talk now with Emily about all the different changes that we've seen in the market and it's almost been fast-tracked possibly due to COVID. What opportunities and new opportunities have opened up for Merino Wool? Thanks, V and Henry. Uh, yeah, I guess a lot of these trends that I'm about to talk about have certainly been exacerbated or fast-tracked uh, with what's happened with COVID, but a lot of these trends aren't new. Um, they've been around for a while. They're, they're not unique to wool either, but they are trends and they are things that we think are a, a great place for wool to really capitalise. So first of these, and I don't think this will be a surprise to anyone, but online retail uh, has been huge for a long time and is really growing. And also for wool, China. China, as Henry mentioned, China consumes historically about half of the wool that is imported to China. So really big consumption market as well as, of course, a key processing destination for the world's wool, but really interesting opportunity there for um, consumption as well. And then we have some other uh, areas, and Henry spoke a bit as well about, um, you know, the ongoing casualisation in the world. And so one of the key spaces we have for wool is loungewear or leisurewear. Uh, and I guess it's a term that I guess people probably might not be familiar with, but it is just as it sounds, uh, loungewear or leisurewear. It's just clothes to sort of hang around in and feel comfortable in. So wool um, we think has some great potential there. And then, of course, athleisure or activewear or sportswear. Um, so we've seen that's been a really, really strong growth market for wool. And so we've um, been having a look at that. And also, of course, in personal protective equipment as well. So not, I guess, not sort of cheap throwaway face masks or anything like that, but looking at some interesting opportunities and um, things where wool uh, can be used to improve uh, performance and improve mental sharpness and things like that whilst in the workplace. Emily, if we take a look at both in-store and online sales, which you touched on before, can we predict a growth looking forward in the different markets across the world? Yeah, sure. So um, there's a lot of global data agencies who spend a great deal of time and money trying to look into all, um, all indicators around the world to predict this. So we do have some data from a company called Global Data, and their prediction is that in the next four or so years, so forecasted out to 2024, the expectation is for in-store retail to decline at a rate of 2 to 3% per year. Conversely, across that same time period out to 2024, the expectation is that online retail is going to continue to grow and grow at a rate of about 10% per year, compounded annual growth. So um, still a lot of upside where online is concerned based on those predictions, absolutely. And as you said, I suppose it's not unexpected with the current climate around the world. With this expected growth with online platforms, does AWI work directly with these platforms to help promote the Merino wool? Yeah, absolutely. We've been doing marketing collaborations with a number of really major online retail platforms. So I guess one that probably most people have heard of is Amazon. And Amazon is a large American retailer, but they do operate globally. Amazon, I guess just to give you a bit of an idea about the reach and how many eyeballs are looking at Amazon effectively uh, per month. For the month of June 2021, Amazon had 4 billion visitors uh, visits to that site, so extraordinary traffic numbers on there. Another retailer we've been working with is called Tmall, and they're really, uh, really mostly focused on the Chinese market, and Tmall uh, had 31, a bit over 31.5 million visits for June 21. And another one we've recently done some collaborations with is Zalando, and they're a European-based online retailer. and they had 134 million visits for June 2021. So we're really seeing these online retailers because people are going there, they're looking to buy, uh, and so they're really a great place to use as an education platform to educate consumers about how great wool is and the many, many different uses and applications of wool and the many great natural benefits and inherent uh, benefits of wool. 
but uh, also just massive numbers, uh, massive numbers going through them. You know, you can really do some very interesting online sales campaigns where people can watch a video and if they see something they like in the video, they can just click on it and click through and go directly to purchasing that garment. So that's really yielding some really great results for us. Emily, as you've said, they're really big international online platforms that you're dealing with. But that obviously, I'm assuming, has a problem when it comes to the climate that you're experiencing between even just the northern or southern hemisphere. So are you able to target smaller or different campaigns within these platforms dependent on the region? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And each of the platforms um, has a different audience. Um, I mean, you know, when, you, when you're looking at 4 billion visits per month to a platform like Amazon, you know, there's really sort of, you know, something for everyone on Amazon. And so, and so we would just really target um, our messaging towards something that suits us and suits wool. But for some of those other platforms, you know, for example, for Zalando, for the European market, they're really, really interested in the environmental credentials. So Wool's got a great story to tell there and we know that the consumers in those countries are really looking for that information. So that's the type of information we play up in the marketing campaign. For example, I guess then when we looked at doing the Tmall campaign, um, so the Zalando campaign with Europe, that was for the autumn winter collection. But when we were working with Tmall, that was for the spring summer collection. So of course, completely different focus there and really looking at saying, Wool is great for any season, it's breathable, you know, you can do whatever you need to do in wool, it's a great fibre for any time of year. So really can target, um, make sure that um, that our advertising on those sites is only being seen um, by, you know, the people that we want to see it and that it's really being targeted towards the markets that are looking to buy it. Or, of course, we can use it to um, be more broadly pushed across the site so that we can start accessing new consumers if that's the target of the campaign. Emily, with China expected to make such a strong bounce back from COVID, and they're also, as Henry's just taken us through, they're our biggest importer as well as our consumer of Australian wool. Do you have specific targeted campaigns that are just for China? Yes, we sure do. Yeah. Um, so I guess there's a few um, a few recent ones that I can highlight. So a lot of Chinese buying happens around um, festivals and um, public holidays and um, special shopping days. So one that we've done recently is uh, around the um, festival of Goddess Day. And that's basically where men buy presents for women. Uh, women might buy presents for other women in their lives. For example, you know, their mum or their daughter or aunt or a uh, female colleague and women also uh, use the opportunity to buy presents for themselves. So we did a marketing campaign around Goddess Day uh, and we've also done, um, you know, as I previously mentioned um, with Timor, we did Wool Week and so that was really focused around, um, you know, having, um, you know, having a whole week festival and celebration around wool and, uh, and really getting existing retailers from the Timor website, so 100 retailers, to pull together the wool uh, products that they normally sell and really sort of put it all in one hub so that people really can see the depth and breadth of amazing things that wool can be used for and the great amount of range of products that can be found in wool. Emily, I think we need a goddess day in Australia. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Except, I, yeah, I mean, you just don't want to get stuck trying to buy all your own presents. Just got to make sure you can get someone else to buy you some as well, for sure. That's how I get my birthday presents and Mother's Day presents. I buy <laughs> myself a backup. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. Emily, there's no doubt, as you've touched on, in your introduction that COVID's changed the way we live and Henry's backed that up with some really good statistics. And exercising is one of the really big things that's coming out across the world with people not getting on transportation. With this rise, is there a potential to bring wool into the market here? Absolutely, I think so. I think uh, the athleisure and sportswear market has been a really important rapidly growing and continuously growing market for wool for a number of years now and I think you know we've really got an opportunity to capitalize on that and to push that growth further 
I guess there's, you know, there's been a number of things that have grown, unexpected growth, I guess, that we've seen across the globe as a result of COVID. And I think some of this um, athleisure wear and, and leisure wear and lounge wear um, growth was, I guess, a bit unexpected. I don't think many people foresaw a global pandemic. So um, there's, I mean, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, and you look at a lot of big um, big cities over there, a lot of people, they're really trying to keep people off public transport and really encouraging people to ride or walk wherever possible to be able to keep distance from other people and uh, minimise the risk of transmission of COVID. So, you know, the World Health Organisation said whenever feasible, ride bikes or walk. Um, Paris has rolled out over 650 kilometres of cycleways and bike stores were declared an essential service in the UK. So I think, you know, it, we've seen the global wellness economy, which is, I guess, people buying things to feel good about themselves. So, you know, that could be anything from spa days to yoga clothes. Um, and that economy in and of itself is worth over a trillion dollars. And that is, it's grown at 12.8%. And that is forecast, that sort of similar growth is forecast to continue for the next little while. So, it really is a huge economy and one that is growing and is a good opportunity for wool, absolutely. Yeah, it certainly has its place in that market, that's for sure. Emily, one of the other big things that always comes up in conversation is our environmental sustainability. How is AWI helping safeguard our industry? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a growing area of, um, area of importance for a lot of people right around the globe. Uh, there's there's currently the European Union is wanting to put a rating system on all apparel sold in the European Union to give consumers a really quick and easy way to understand the environmental credentials uh, and the impact that that production of that garment has had on the environment so that people can make a more informed buying choice. So what they're proposing is that they would do a simple traffic light system. So, of course, green is good uh, and, you you know, based on the European Union's um, methodology and, and I guess, quality assurance system. They're saying oh, that would be a good product uh, to buy for the environment. And, of course, amber, you know, you think about it, and red, not great for the environment. So I guess at the moment, and this is an area of, um, of science that we've been working on for a long time, but one that continues to grow and grow in importance, at the moment, with the science that's being used and with some of the methodologies that are being used to understand environmental impact, they are detrimental towards wool and it would show that wool would be a red traffic light, uh, you know, saying that there's poor environmental credentials for wool. Um, of course, we don't agree with that. We think, you know, wool's a really great sustainable, renewable fibre. Uh, and so we've been working really hard on behalf of growers to improve that rating and to put science together and put science in front of the decision makers in Europe to say we don't agree with the way your science is um, giving results and we don't think it's far reaching enough. Um, you haven't understood all of the complexities uh, in the system and of growing wool and also trying to get the life cycle to be a really true life cycle. So for example the methodologies at the moment that they're using they finish calculating the environmental impact at the point of purchase for the consumer, whereas we think it's really important to take into account the full length of the garment's life because, of course, you could buy a polyester garment, uh, wear it once and throw it out, and that won't decompose for years and years and years and years, whereas, you know, and if you do wash it, there's microplastics to consider and all those sorts of things. but you know, for wool, you know, wool is generally it doesn't uh, it doesn't need to be washed so often um, because you know obviously it's odor resistant and and people generally keep wool for a very long time. But over that time, you know, you're using much less water and much less detergent than other fibers. And you know, obviously, wool also decomposes and it's really you know proportionally it's a very well regarded fiber and it's recycled a lot. So really trying to expand where um, where you know how that um, thinking and how that science is being done and really ensure that wool um, you know doing everything we can to try and get a green tick on wool products in the marketplace. 
Yeah, it's certainly an area, Emily, we can't overlook. Just before I let you go, are there any other new uses for wool that AWI is currently investing in that we haven't touched on today? Yeah, I think, um, and I mean, I agree, um, you know, earlier we were saying it's a bit hard on a podcast to really show exactly what we're talking about. And I guess these um, fabric and processing innovations are really, I mean, you know, it sounds silly, but to actually see them and feel them is really something different. But there's some really great and really interesting knitting innovation and technologies around. And um, and so there's some really great seamless knitting technology. So, you know, it's got to the point now where people have designed knitting machines where you can upload a pattern and the machine can just knit that whole garment. And so you just get a wholly completed garment spat out the back of the machine. So, I mean, you know, when you think about it, traditionally what you'd have to do is you'd knit a flat piece of cloth and so that cloth would come out and then you would draw the pattern onto it and then you would cut around uh, all the different pieces of the garment of clothing and then you'd have to stitch them together. So this new technology that just literally just knits the whole garment and it can just knit it in its entirety means that, you know, there's much better efficiency. So, you know, much less wastage because whenever you cut pieces of a garment out of a big piece of fabric there's going you know you can set up the pattern as well as you possibly can but there's always going to be off cuts and trim that um, aren't as valuable or aren't useful at all anymore and then you know you don't have to pay anyone now to you know to draw that pattern on and cut and sew and all those sorts of things so much less wastage of the fiber um, great labor efficiencies and amazing products and so then some of the other innovation that we're now working with, though, to support that is in um, the yarns that are required for these new knitting machines have to be more complex and have to change to make sure we can get the most out of the knitting machine. So that, you know, and so then we've got collaborations at the moment with knitting machine companies and with yarn spinners to really get the most out of this technology so that we can then take samples of that to people in the supply chain and say, did you know you can do this amazing thing with wool and show them examples of that and then, you know, hopefully they can incorporate those types of pieces into their collections. Um, and I guess there's also one other one uh, that's worth highlighting, I suppose, that I think is really quite cool is the um, is the digital printing. And, I mean, you can get some amazing colour and quality and clarity in that digital printing. And um, if anyone comes to a face-to-face, um, Future will be, you know, delighted to show you that. But we've got an amazing piece of um, a 16 micron um, woven piece of fabric and we've uh, taken it and just printed a picture uh, of a sheep onto that just so that you can see the quality and clarity um, that can be achieved using this technology. But, I mean, you know, some other great things about it are, um, you know, you can do it much later um, down the processing chain so you don't have to choose what pattern and what colours you want at yarn dyeing stage. You can wait until you get the finished fabric and then print directly onto it. Uh, also, much, much less water because it only needs to be printed directly onto the fabric. You don't have to sort of dye and then wash the dyes out and all that sort of thing. So I guess, you know, there's pressure. You know, of course, uh, there's pressure on wool growers to um, to really look after the environment, but just the same, there's pressure on all of the wool processors and the mills to really look after the environment as well and decrease their electricity and their water usage and really, you know, think about their environmental impact. So some of these technologies are really, really enhancing the whole supply chain and how we can all uh, do better with environmental um, credentials. And now we're going to move on and we're going to talk to Dr. Jane Littlejohn and Jane's going to join us now and talk all about the investments that AWI is involved with in greater detail. Welcome Jane and thanks for joining us. Thanks Bea, nice to be on your podcast. <laughs> Jane, we'll just kick straight off and into it and the big welfare problem facing our industry is fly strike and a search for a vaccine is a huge investment for AWI and something that could give growers another tool in their toolbox to help fight fly strike. How are we progressing? Well, it's a huge investment for, for growers' levies and um, obviously the federal government puts in matching funds as well. Um, but also... Uh, that totals up 2.7 million over about 
three years and we're just about to add another 650,000. But also CSIRO and the University of Melbourne have put their own funds in as well. So it is a massive investment. Um, in terms of the progress, certainly years of work have culminated in a suite of antigens from the maggots that, that um, raise an immune response in sheep and that immune response um, in, a, in a petri dish actually does inhibit maggot growth and it uh, will kill some maggots as well. So um, the extra funds that have been uh, just put into the whole project, uh, I suppose we'll be fast tracking some developments over the next 12 months. Um, looking at, at what happens with those stunted maggots, you know, they may not even complete their life cycle, they may be so inhibited and, and you know, what happens on the sheep, because we haven't tested it on the sheep yet, so we're hoping for some, what we would might call covert strikes, strikes that uh, are self-limiting, they don't progress, and the grower might not even see them. Um, also looking at how to, I suppose the best formulations, but also how to synthetically produce these um, antigens um, in a cheap way. So all that sort of adds up to hopefully a dossier at the end of the year that, or the end of the financial year that is attractive to a, a potential commercial party, i.e. a pharmaceutical company. Um, so yeah, that's, we do think that, it, as you rightly say, then that we, hopefully it would, would be another tool in the toolbox. We certainly don't expect it to sort of prevent strike, um, but um, it may be another tool that growers add to everything they currently do. Um, and um, to you know, it is a fly strike is not an easy, easy, easy um, disease to solve. Um, so it's. All tools are welcome. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely needs quite a few things thrown at it. And as a result, I'm sure the vaccine's not the only thing AWI's doing in their R&D when it comes to fly strike. What else is on the cards? The University of Melbourne is, is partnering on the vaccine project and they're look, really looking at several things um, to do with the fly genome. And that's scrutinising that genome to identify potential new drug targets for chemical prevention or control. Also, things that might be a target for biological control. Uh, they're looking at what genes might be associated with chemical resistance. Um, so there's a, a you know, gee, would I love to have a lot of money to throw at those sorts of things. Um, but, but you know, hopefully we can just get a, you know, a glimpse into the genome and the functionality and the function of some of those genes, and that might set up future, you know, future research proposals that we can cherry pick from. But there's also um, from the sheep side, uh, you know, we we do have thousands of uh, uh, sheep genomes, um, so we. Uh, are running genome-wide association studies to try and identify what suite of genes might be associated with resistance or with susceptibility to fly strike. Um, so far, we haven't come up with you know, one or two genes, and that's highly unlikely. Um, but certainly, um, we're hopeful that we can come up with genes that will inform um, Australian sheep breeding values, so they might be genome enhanced Australian sheep breeding values uh, for fly strike resistance. But that we just we need to run more samples through, um, and hopefully we can do that over the next couple of years as well. Yeah, definitely a very interesting area for watch this space. That one. If we move on from fly strike and look at reproduction, AWI has already invested so much levy money with many wonderful outcomes being adopted by our industry now, which is wonderful to see. Where are we situated and looking at in the future? Um, from, well, from re if you mean by where are we situated, you know, what, what's our lamb survival rate or our, our you know, reproductive efficiency, I suppose 
in terms of a target, we'd be wanting to um, improve it all the time, so decrease land mortality continuously. Um, and, and you know, so I don't know, you know, where we're situated at. There are various databases and and progress is is ongoing, but what the actual endpoint is, I don't know, and, and what the you know, what the animal welfare lobbies would would prefer. But um, we respond to we certainly respond to queries from growers on how they can fine tune their reproduction management in that whole cycle of continuous improvement. Um, and that could be you know measurement of, of risk factors and obviously you know pregnancy scanning and, and feed nutrition all those those things are risk risk factors for poor reproductive success um and some examples of those projects that um growers have sort of stimulated as a comparison of lamb survival by um with either feed, uh, tra trailing feed supplements or bins. So, you know, feed bins, so which, uh, which has the, the greater impact on lamb survival. Certainly, uh, refining body condition score with, uh, that was grower initiated. Um, and also, uh, looking at really the value that you get from pregnancy scanning, really articulating and quantifying that value that you're going to see if you adopt pregnancy scanning. So all those three projects are with MLA. Um, I know, and Emily's in charge of those, and I know she works really closely with MLA on, on um, projects for reproduction and certainly the MLA strategic partnership in reproduction. That's going to be a, a big area of investment um, in the future. So we're trying to identify um, and we'll certainly be Playing a big role in in um, in that program where we can. Yeah, great to see the continued collaboration there. When we move on and look at genetics, Jane and AWI, I think the Merino Lifetime Productivity Project or the MLP, which I won't make you go into too much depth today because I'm really mindful we have three other Sheep Connect New South Wales podcasts with the MLP sites which are a huge investment for AWI. So we cover them very heavily here at Sheep Connect New South Wales. But what other investments do does AWI fund at the moment in this area of genetic improvement? Um, did you guys um, talk about the, what we call MLP add-ons? So those MLP sheep or those sheep that have left the project um, can, are also being researched into um, I suppose the heritability of um, resilience genes, um, also um, more detailed look at reproduction and breaking down the component traits of number of lamb weaned, number of lambs weaned, and also the heritability of feed efficiency. So um, if they weren't covered by your other podcasts. Um, they would they would make a podcast in their on their own in their own right, but yeah, I suppose utilizing the, the that that I suppose that flock to its maximum um, because they've all been genotyped, so they're a fantastic resource to add on project after project. Yeah, absolutely, and it's good to see those flocks utilized in as many different ways as possible. One of the other big areas of investment for AWI is education and extension, of which I'm very pleased to be a part of through Sheep Connect New South Wales. But there's so many different facets of this and it's an important part of the AWI strategic plan with numerous national and international projects. How can our listeners find out what's going on in this space and what's on offer to them? Well, I would obviously say the Sheep Connect and other AWI extension networks would be a fantastic start. Um, the, there is an AWI grower app that you can download. So that's sort of a choose your own adventure uh, and set up your own profile sort of thing that you can get on your phone. Um, on wool.com, if you type in the search sort of engine um, grower menu, that's another as it says, menu where you can again find what interests you in terms of extension. Um, but there's also an AWI helpline 
which is uh, 1-800-070-099. And I do take calls regularly from that helpline, not necessarily about extension, but about research stuff. So all of my team and all of AWI are very happy to help people with some information and point them in the right direction. Excellent. Thanks, Jane. Thanks for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. Um, and I wish all your listeners the very best of luck. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of It's Time For You, the Sheep Connect New South Wales podcast. We'd appreciate it if you could share our podcast within your networks. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to the AWI podcast, The Yarn. We'd love you to stay in contact with Sheep Connect New South Wales, and you can do this in a number of ways. Join our network by visiting www.sheepconnectnewsouthwales.com.au Find us at Sheep Connect New South Wales on Facebook and Twitter. We look forward to seeing you at our workshops and events later in the year. Thanks again for joining us today. Bye for now.